Um, my name is Jordan Elder, and I am the pastor of Preaching and Vision at Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. And um, this is my wife, Sammy. My two sons are here. My daughter is back there. Hopefully she'll stay back there. Uh, we'll see. But glad to be with you guys. This is actually the third time I've gotten to spend a Sunday with the Center Church family. Um, I was actually here the very first Sunday, sitting in the back. Got to be there the day uh, that Kyle was commissioned as pastor, church planner to plant Center Church. Were any of you guys there that day? What was that old building? What was that place called? There you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so that was an awesome day to kind of see uh, what, I guess you guys were, were meeting before then in homes and things like that, but that was an awesome day just to get to be a part of that. And Kyle and I have been friends for a long time. Um, he called me a, a couple months ago and just said, hey, do you guys have any of your staff members or elders or any of your church planners that are being trained that would want to come preach for me on July 25th? And I said, well, that's actually my wife's birthday. So happy birthday, Sammy. And... Um, <laughs> and I said, we'll be, I'll be on the way to Galveston that day. So maybe I could do it. We could just stop in on the, on the way. And I would love to spend some time with you guys. So I'm really glad to be here. I know that you guys are in a series looking at the parables of Jesus this summer. And so uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14 this morning. So open your Bible with me to Luke chapter 14. Um, we have a text this morning uh, that is pretty tense. Um, Jesus finds himself in the home of a leading Pharisee, okay? And so the scene that we have before we get into a series of three parables is really important. So Jesus is going to tell three parables. They all are related. We're going to look at those in a second. But we really need to understand the scene so that we can rightly understand the warnings that Jesus gives us in these parables. So Jesus, he's in the home of a leading Pharisee. He's been invited in by these Pharisees into kind of a dinner party of sorts. So Jesus, who normally we see eating and drinking with whom? Sinners and tax collectors. The broken people, the outsiders, is normally whom Jesus is dining with, now finds himself invited into kind of this elitist group, into this dinner party of sorts with these Pharisees. And Jesus is on his journey toward Jerusalem. And, and as he is journeying toward Jerusalem, he's dependent upon the hospitality of others along the way. And, and in our scene today, we see Jesus in the company of the religious and social elites of Israel. And this dinner is going to get tense. It's going to get awkward. I want you to think about um, maybe an awkward Thanksgiving dinner. Has anybody ever had one of those where, you know, Cousin Joey uh, brings up, some of the things or all of the things you're not supposed to talk about at Thanksgiving, right? He doesn't just leave it to kind of the cowboys and the weather, but he, you know, brings up politics or, or whatever it might be. Has anybody done that? Or maybe you are Cousin Joey. Anybody Cousin Joey? You're the guy that does that. Um, imagine that awkwardness, all right, dialed up maybe to 10 as, as the scene that we get. And so let's look at Luke chapter 14. We're going to read 1 through 24, but let's start with just verse 1 and 2. On uh, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, let's stop for just a second. It's important that we kind of understand the fullness of what's going on here. There's a lot going on in this scene that we need to take in, especially if we're going to understand the parables that Jesus gives. So first of all, it's the Sabbath. That's important. 
It's very likely that Jesus has spent that morning teaching at the local synagogues. This is what Jesus was doing as he was making his way toward Jerusalem, that he would stop in on the Sabbath, that he would teach in the different synagogues. And so it's likely that Jesus had been teaching um, at the synagogue that morning. Um, there had, at this point in Luke's gospel, there's been this growing tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. Back in chapter 11, Jesus kind of pronounces these woes. Over the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, I want to just read you a couple of those. In Luke 11, verse 42, Jesus says this. He says, woe to you, Pharisees, or that word woe means warning or correction. He says, woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rule and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. I mean, that's sharp. Jesus says this to their face. Verse 43, he says, woe or correction to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. It's like, good, good to see you today, too, Jesus. You know, thanks for that. Jesus, there's this growing tension by the time we get to Luke chapter 14 between Jesus and the Pharisees. In chapter 6, Jesus performs a miracle on the Sabbath. And then he ends up kind of getting into this squabble of sorts with the Pharisees who come questioning him. The Pharisees are threatened by Jesus. They don't like Jesus. And so we get to chapter, uh, when we get into, uh, into chapter 12 as well, we see Jesus actually warns his disciples of the great hypocrisy of the Pharisees. The Pharisees have spent the last four or five chapters of Luke policing Jesus, accusing Jesus, questioning Jesus. Why? What's their beef with Jesus? Well, the Pharisees had an agenda for Israel. They had a vision for Israel. You could maybe think of a politician in our day who would have an agenda or a vision for our country. The Pharisees had an agenda and a vision for Israel. And Jesus comes claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be the Messiah, doing miracles um, that affirm would affirm the, the, his testimony he sure does seem to look like the Son of God, but yet his agenda for Israel seems to be very different than their agenda. And so what we have here in this scene with Jesus at the dinner table, invited into this dinner party with the, these leading Pharisees, is quite possibly a sting operation. Think maybe one of those like hidden camera shows. Everybody's in on it except for the people who are on hidden camera, right? This is quite possibly a setup that they have a trap that they've set for Jesus because Jesus has been known to heal on the Sabbath, which according to the Pharisees was a no, no for the Pharisees who uh, tried to, you know, uh, find their righteousness and following every letter of the law to heal on the Sabbath was to work on the Sabbath. See how they did that. They're trying to corner Jesus here. They're trying to find some charge to bring against him, to discredit him. And so they're saying, hey, if he heals on the Sabbath, then we can say that he's actually working on the Sabbath. And to work on the Sabbath is to break God's law. And if we can say that Jesus breaks God's law, then we can say he's a sinner. He's, he, he's worse than we are because we're righteous. We can discredit him. We can charge him. We can get rid of him. Listen to what Kent Hughes, I think this might be on the screen. Listen to what Kent Hughes says about this scene that we have. He says, it was a setup all the way. The place had been carefully chosen. The home of a prominent Pharisee. 
where he and his notable guests could observe Jesus firsthand and then bear unified testimony to any and every transgression. Also, the dinner party was scheduled on the Sabbath, a day that Jesus had reportedly violated on three separate occasions when he cast out a demon and when he healed Simon Peter's mother in chapter 4. And when he healed a man with a withered hand in chapter 6. And most recently in chapter 13, when Jesus healed the bent woman on the Sabbath. A terrible snare had been set for Jesus. They thought they had Jesus trapped. And so this is the scene. Luke tells us that they are watching him carefully. In verse 1, the plan is in place. And what do they do? They bring in a man with dropsy, which is essentially organ failure. So you can imagine if you've seen someone whose organs are starting to shut down, very, very weak, frail, possibly even body swollen. So they bring this man in. What is this man? He's to them essentially bait. They are baiting this poor sick uh, Jesus with this poor, sick, dying Man, look at what Jesus says in verse 3. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Jesus sees right through the sting. Verse 4, But they, remi- but they remain silent. Of course they're not going to say anything. Then he took him and he healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you... Having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well and on the Sabbath day would not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. Jesus sees right through the setup. He knows what they want him to do. And so he asked the question to those who are the experts or supposedly the experts in the law. Is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath or not? That's why you you brought me here. That's why you brought him here. Is it lawful? They don't have an answer. They have nothing to say. And right in front of them, Jesus heals the man. It's an emphatic answer to his question. And I just want you to imagine what that might have been like. Just right in front of their eyes, them witnessing the swelling, leaving the man's body. Them witnessing this man whom they treated with such disrespect. So such in a dehumanizing way, they find this uh, this guy in the town that they know is dying and they use him as bait and they bring him in. And all of a sudden they watch his dying body right in front of their eyes, renewed in strength, likely running out of the house overjoyed. And Jesus follows up with another cutting question. He says, how many of you, how many of you would rescue your son if he fell in a well, whether it was the Sabbath or not? How many of you would, 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 would jump in the well to pull out your most treasured possession if it fell in the well, whether it was the Sabbath or not? And would that be lawful? It wouldn't be deemed working on the Sabbath, would it? Why? Because it would be considered rescue. It's not, uh, it's not work to rescue what is in danger when you have the power to do so. When you have the power to rescue what is dying and in danger, it is not work, it is love, it is mercy, it is grace, it is kindness. You see, here Jesus sits with the leaders among Israel, the experts in God's law, the ones who assume that they know God's plan and that they are leading God's people faithfully. Yet they sit at the table with the very Son of God, the Messiah of Israel in their midst, and they are so blinded by their own self 
righteousness that they cannot even see who's in front of them. They cannot even see God in their midst. You see, they had become so legalistic or formulaic with the word of God that they completely missed the whole point of the law. I mean, what's the whole point of the law? It's summed up for us in Deuteronomy, isn't it? What's the whole point of the law? To love God and to love your neighbor, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, the whole point of the Sabbath was to help us take a day of rest so that we can be reminded of who God is, so that we might love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. Yet here they are on the Sabbath using a sick man to try and condemn the Son of God. I'm going to say that again. Here they are, the religious people, God's leaders of His people, on the Sabbath, a day given by God to help us love God using a dying man as bait to try and condemn the very Son of God. What sick, twisted, wicked hearts. Do you see the problem with self-righteousness? Do you see how blinding it can be? Jesus opens their eyes to the depths of their sin, and they are silent. Verse 6 says, all uh, all, and they could not reply to these things. There are no words. Jesus has seen right through their setup and he has flipped it and he's turned it around. He's exposed them. Jesus has cut to their heart. I want you to think about how quiet and awkward and tense this room must be now at this point. All the anticipation, all the buildup, all the planning and scheming, and now suddenly quiet Awkward, tense, stunned. All the talkers of the day, they have nothing to say. Have you ever been in a situation like this when you've just completely been shut up? You know, like um, maybe you've you've been in a room where you realize that you're out of your league and that you probably should just take the posture of a learner. Um, maybe you've been in a situation where you realize your you, your eyes have been open that you were just dead wrong. I've been in many of these conversations with my wife. Amen. This is your chance right here. Amen. When I realized I was just dead wrong and I should just be quiet. And Jesus has their ears now. He has their complete attention. And he's going to try now that he has their ear. This is what God does, by the way. He's now going to try and get their heart. Okay. Jesus isn't just trying to win here. He's not trying to shame or condemn the Pharisees. Do you know that Jesus loved the religious with the same passionate love that he loved the broken. Do you know that? And so he's going to try and get to their heart because Jesus loves all kinds of sinners, rebellious sinners and religious sinners. He came to die for all kinds of sinners, rebellious sinners and religious sinners. And so he's going to tell a series of parables to try and get to their heart. Jesus, uh, and we see this in all the Gospels, but Luke gives us several parables of Jesus. Jesus uses parables with the crowds He uses parables with his own disciples, and he uses parables with the Pharisees. And keep in mind, Jesus doesn't use parables as a means to try and teach something new. That's not how Jesus uses parables. The reason Jesus uses parables, it's more like an object lesson, or maybe the way that you would teach a child. He's not trying to teach them something new that they can't understand. Jesus uses parables as a way to try and teach something that is right in front of us that we are often blinded to. That's why he uses parables. And so Jesus is going to do that here. 
And in these parables, he's going to graciously attempt to open our eyes to the dangers of self-righteousness. Let's read the rest of the text. Um, It's long. Hang in there with me. Follow along with me if you have a Bible. Starting in verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin, uh, then, uh, then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the man who invited him, which, by the way, this guy is probably really regretting inviting Jesus to dinner at this point. (laughs) So now second parable. Now he gives a lesson to the man who invited him. When you give a, a dinner or a banquet... Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Do you see how Jesus is just turning everything about the power structure and the way of the world upside down? For people who belong to, to Jesus, who want to live their life in God's kingdom. Do you see this? When he said, uh, verse 50, I love this verse, by the way. When he said, um, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This guy is like, you know, when Thanksgiving dinner is getting tense. And, and, and it's like, because it, Jesus is just drilling deeper here. It's like the guy who, when if everything gets tense and the guy's like, so, uh. How about them cowboys? You know, it's like this guy's just, he's, he's blessed is anybody, everybody who eats bread in the kingdom of God. He's just trying to say something to break through the, the, uh, the, the, how the tension in the room and the awkwardness. But that cues Jesus up for the third parable, verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent out his servants to say to those who, who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife. That's always a good reason, right? Your wife is a good excuse not to go to something. I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Do you see what Jesus is saying here to the leaders of Israel? You're about to miss out on the kingdom of God if you do not get over your pride and open your eyes and lay down your self-righteousness. Do you see what he's saying here? This thing is about to go out to the Gentiles. You're about to miss out on the kingdom of God. Verse 22, and the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, 
Go out to the highways and the hedges. Go to the ends of the earth. And compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited, those first original people who were invited, who were too preoccupied to come to the dinner, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Do you see the warning that Jesus is giving about self-righteousness? In this parable, Jesus warns the Pharisees and he warns us of the dangers of self-righteousness. If you're taking notes this morning, these three parables give us three warnings. The first parable gives us the first warning. Here it is. It is a warning that in our own self-righteousness, we see ourselves inaccurately. We, are all, we, are, we all have to battle self-righteousness. It's, it, that's part of our human condition. Every single one of us. We find some form of merit to stand on to say, I'm good. I'm right. I'm enough. I'm better than. And when we, when we do that, we essentially deny that we are needy and desperate for the grace of God. Even for the very breath that we have in our lungs. And he says, if you're not careful in your own self-righteousness... You see yourself inaccurately. Paul, Paul David Tripp says that our, our own self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. You guys know what I'm talking about? You've been to one of those and you stand in front of it and you're, you're all distorted and twisted. He says that's the way you see yourself. Okay? Our own self-righteousness will blind us to see ourselves inaccurately. And Jesus uses a story of a wedding feast with kind of these pushy, self-important guests who are setting themselves up to get shamed. And Jesus wants us to see that our own self-righteousness is deceiving, that it warps our perspective on ourselves and that it causes us to think that we deserve or that we have earned or that we are due the best seats, that we are good people. We're good people. We elevate ourselves in our own eyes, convinced that because of who we are or what we've done or what we have or what we're not, we're not like those others, that we are superior. And for the Pharisees, it was through their version of law keeping, their specific kind of law keeping that made them elite. It was through religious performance and external appearances. But yet they were so blinded by their self-righteousness that they thought that they could prove that they were superior even to Jesus, who couldn't keep the Sabbath law as purely as them. And Jesus warns them, he says, beware and humble yourselves before you are put to shame. It's a gracious invitation that Jesus is giving to the Pharisees. And it should cause us to ask the question, well, what about us? Right. Raise your hand if you're a first century Pharisee. None of us. Right. So what about us? What 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 are the uh, temptations to self-righteousness in our lives? What is what does self-righteousness look like in our lives? What would Jesus observe in our life if he came to our dinner party, if he sat at our table with us? You see, whether we are aware of it or not, we all live with a measure of self-righteousness and pride. And we need to be made aware of it so that we can humble ourselves in repentance every time it begins to bubble up in our lives. By the way, repentance is not a dirty word. That's like, it's a gift of God to be able to repent of sin. Do you know that? It is a gift to be able to repent of sin. And so we need to just ask yourself, what are the things in your life that give you a sense of being good enough? Just think about that for a minute. 
What are the things in your life that you hang your hat on? What are the things in your life that, you know, if you had to kind of roll out in front of someone, kind of your spiritual resume, that you would say, I'm qualified. <laughs> what, what, are the, what are the things in your life that give you a sense of personal credibility and, and, and validity and good standing? And if, if it's anything other than Jesus Christ died and resurrected for me, you found your self-righteousness. If it's anything other than but for the grace of God, you've found your self-righteousness. In fact, I was thinking about this as I was putting together this sermon, and I just began to write down a list of things in which we are tempted to find our righteousness in. And I'll start with, with my primary one. I'll read my mail first. How about that? Work ethic righteousness. All right? That's it for me. It goes something like this. I'm a really hard worker, and so God will reward me, or he ought to re- reward me, because I work hard. I earned everything that I have. I mean, I work for it, you know? I'm self-disciplined, and, and I'm, I'm rigorous in my time management. I get a lot of stuff done, unlike those other people that are lazy, which makes me more mature, which makes me better than, on and on and on, right? You see how this, you see how this bubbles up in our life? Or maybe it's parenting righteousness. Because I do the right things with my kids. I'm a good parent. I'm more godly than those other parents who can't control their hellion little kids. You know? They're little heathens. Parenting righteousness. You see how this happens? For some people, it's theological righteousness. I have the right theology. You know, I, I not only know my Bible, but I can tell you all these ologies. I can name off 17 different types of ologies. I know all of them, and these other Christians don't. Therefore, I am better, or I am worthy, or whatever it might be, right? You see how this happens. For some, it's intellectual righteousness. Well, I'm, and I'm, an, I'm, you know, I'm an elite thinker. I'm better read. I'm more articulate. I'm smarter. I'm more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. There's a lot of that going on in our culture today, isn't it? A lot of elitism. It's mercy righteousness, which, by the way, this is not my mail. I do not struggle with mercy or compassion righteousness. This is not one for me, but it might be for you. I care about people. I'm more caring than everybody else. I'm the first one to volunteer or to meet needs. I care about the poor and the disadvantaged in the way that everybody else should. Legalistic righteousness. Too many Christians just are not concerned about holiness these days. And that's the problem. If people would just get more holy like me. Financial righteousness. I manage my money wisely. I stay out of debt. I'm not like those moralist, uh, materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. Political righteousness. If you really love God and care about the world, then you will be in the corner of this candidate. And if you don't, you don't love God. You don't care about the world, right? Political righteousness. On and on and on. I want to ask you, what is it for you? What pedestal do you stand upon thinking it gets you closer to God or thinking that it puts you ahead of other people? Any form of self-righteousness allows us to live our lives pretending. And that's the problem. 
and allows us to live our lives in an, an illusion. It's this illusion that we hide behind rather than honestly confronting the depths of our sin and our need and our brokenness. And Jesus, he exposes the self-righteousness in our lives so that we will see ourselves accurately. Jesus loves you so much that he wants you to see yourself accurately as a sinner desperately in need of grace so that you would see him accurately who has come to meet every need and pour his grace out upon your life. And so that's the first warning that in self-righteousness, we can see ourselves inaccurately. The second warning that we get in the second parable is that in our self-righteousness, we can see others inaccurately. So we don't we don't see one another uh, for who they truly are. We actually uh, begin to kind of make assumptions about other people in our own self-righteousness. David French, hear me for a second. David French, who is an author and kind of a cultural commentator, and he's a Christian. um, He he said recently that the greatest sin in the church today is what he calls the sin of a suicide. He said we are killing one another with assumptions. In our own self-righteousness, we don't see one another accurately. We assume narratives upon other people. And it is tearing apart the body of Christ in which Jesus died to unite. And Jesus wants us to lay down our self-righteousness. Any form of self-righteousness always leads us to judging and excluding others. We elevate ourselves and we condemn others who aren't as superior or righteous or as good as we are. Do you see this? And what it does is it kind of has a compounding effect that leads us into more sin, not less. And this is exactly what Jesus is pointing out in the second parable. This is the point of his advice to the man who invited him in verses 12 through 14. The Pharisees thought that their homogenous dinner table would elevate them. They only hung out with those righteous like them. And Jesus says, no, no, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be blessed, fill your table with the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. See, Jesus invites us to consider our social circles in this second parable. He says, your social circle will let you know if you have some self-righteousness in your life. Specifically, consider your dinner table. Uh, Whom you eat with is whom you share life with. All right. So consider whom you eat with, who who comes in your home. And that will tell you if you have some self-righteousness that's working itself out in relationship with others. We know that we are freed up of self-righteousness in our lives when we open our table and open our lives to those who are different than us. In fact, I want to just tell you a quick story from uh, from a few years ago when God revealed to me how my own self-righteousness was playing out in relationship to other people, particularly people who were very different from me. Um, several years ago, uh, a few years ago, my wife and I, we were uh, we became foster parents and we were fostering a little baby named Daniel, a little baby boy. He came home from the NICU. Uh, he was how old was he? How many days old? Ten days old. So he came straight home from the NICU to us. Um, Mom and dad um, were getting in fistfights in the hospital room. They both had lived a long life of drugs, and so CPS immediately removed the baby, and they actually they had to leave the hospital. They weren't allowed. They were banned, whatever you call it, from the hospital. They couldn't come back to the hospital. And so this baby comes to live with us, and, um, and there, was a, there, there was a thing that was starting to happen in my heart where self-righteousness was just building, like this little, 
tower of self-righteousness was just building up in my heart as I thought about his birth parents, and especially his mom. We were spending some time around her because we had to take him for visits. And so we were getting to know her more. And I found myself just... Um, just starting just to think, think of her, just thinking like, how could you be, like, how could you, how could you do this stuff? Like, how could you not care about your kid and, and, and continue to make these choices and be so selfish? And I was thinking some of those, I would never thoughts, All right? So you see it, don't you? You see the self-righteousness that was in my heart. I viewed her as, as really a failure. Um, but all of this began to change for me as we began to get to know her. And particularly, there was a particular moment where I started to stop um, assuming, killing her with assumptions about her life, and I saw her as human for the first time. And it was, we were in court, and the judge had really kind of publicly had just humiliated her in court. She had some aunts and uncles that had come there along with her mom to try and make a case for her of why she should um, not have her rights terminated. And the judge just completely humiliates her and, and some things he says to her, um, and maybe right, maybe rightly so, maybe. I mean, she had bl- really blown it and continu- was continually blowing it. And she just begins to cry. She just begins to weep. And in that moment, I saw her for the first time as a human. And, and now listen, here's what happened after that. We walked out into the lobby. My wife is holding baby Daniel. And she comes up to us as we're trying to get out of there as fast as possible and we kind of, like right before we get on the elevator, and she says, please, please, can we go to McDonald's across the street with you so that I can spend more time with Daniel? And everything within me wanted to be like, heck, no. You know, like, first of all, McDonald's is disgusting. We're Whataburger people, all right? Like, who eats there? Fast food self-righteousness. But God wouldn't let that happen. And so we go across the street with McDonald's and their whole family comes, the aunts and the uncles and, and everybody and, and the grandma and, and we're all there. And as, I mean, this is, this is the kind of table, even, and I'm ashamed saying this even as a pastor, but I'm just telling you the truth, what was happening in my heart, the war that was raging in my heart. These are the type of people that I would never want to be seen sitting at a table with, okay? Um, and as we sat across the table from her, her name was Tasha, and we were sharing a meal with her, the Holy Spirit began to just work in my heart. Um, I began to see her genuine love for her, for her baby. I saw her regret and her pain over what was happening in her life. I heard her talk about her addiction to meth. And I learned more of her story. Um, I realized that she was born into a cycle of poverty and addiction and violence. She told us that when she was 13, and her mom was sitting right there, she, when she was 13 years old, she, li- she lived for weeks at a time in different hotel rooms uh, with drug addicts, her mom and with drug addicts from 13. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. Was she a sinner? Yes. Had she been sinned against? And wounded? Yes. Am I a sinner? Yes. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul says in Romans that there is no one who is righteous, not even one. He says our best stuff that we bring to the table, the stuff that you'd put on your spiritual resume, is but filthy rags compared to the righteousness of our God. 
Am I a sinner? Yes. Was she a sinner? Yes. You know what the difference is between her and I? My sin takes on a different form than her sin. That's it. That's it. And that's what I began to realize as I sat there. The difference between her and I was that I have found forgiveness and new life and redemption and restoration in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And she had yet to know that good news. That was the difference between her and I. And we got in the car. In fact, with, which is just the weirdest thing. Foster care is so weird. We like leave that dinner with her baby and put her baby in our car with our other kids, and we, and we drive home, and she drives home. It's just the weirdest thing, but we got in the car, and I told my wife, I said, that was, um, that was so cool. Like, I wish we could have dinner with them again. Do you think we can invite them to our house? And, you know, and then you're playing that game, of like, well, I don't know if that's safe. These people are meth addicts. Like, and, you know, um, but it was just amazing. It was like one of the most enjoyable meals that we've ever had with people. And my wife, Sammy, she, she agreed that, that Jesus was like just in our presence at that meal, that we were so blessed by that meal. Do you hear what I'm saying? We were blessed by that meal. This is the blessing of humility and sacrificial love that Jesus is talking about in this parable in verse 14. This is what Jesus is trying to open our eyes to. That we need to lay aside our self-righteousness that keeps us from the broken. That we need to see ourselves as fellow sinners and fellow strugglers. That if you are a Christian, you are a but-for-grace person. But for grace, who would I be? But for grace, where would I be? But for grace, what would I have? But for grace, what wounds would I have? We are but for grace people. And Jesus is trying to open these Pharisees' eyes in this parable. He's trying to open our eyes that our self-righteousness can not only cause us to see ourselves inaccurately, but see other people inaccurately and miss out on the blessing of life in the kingdom of God. And then finally... We get the third parable and the third warning, and it is the most severe of the warnings, and it's this, that in our self-righteousness, we will miss Jesus. We could be very well in his presence and completely miss him. In our self-righteousness, we will see Christ inaccurately. If we do not repent of our self-righteousness, we might just miss God. And Jesus makes his most severe point in the third parable. He says, don't let your self-righteousness keep you from my banquet, he says in verse 24. And this is strong. He's identified them in the story as the ones who reject the invitation to the banquet. And there is so much that's going on here in this final parable. You can see an Acts 1-8 rhythm here to this warning to the, to the leaders of Israel, where he talks about if you, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, the invitation goes out. And, um, and so there's so much that's going on here that we could unpack, but uh, really, I, I just want to focus here on this. Will they, the question is this, will they see the sickness of their self-righteousness? Will they see themselves as just as broken, just as needy as the man whom they walked in the room with dropsy? Or will they stay preoccupied with the things of the world, power, possession, comfort, status, religious gains? Will they keep up the illusion? Will they keep pretending? Or would they in this moment repent? That's what Jesus hopes happens here, by the way. That, that these Pharisees would repent. That they would be like Nicodemus. 
They'd be one who would see him for who he truly is. That they would repent and enter into relationship with him and claim him as the Messiah. Would they have a seat at his banquet when the time comes? When his work of saving sinners is done? Would they say, I'm a sinner who needs you, Jesus, to save me? Would they be at his banquet when he comes again? Would they pull up a chair beside the sick and the crippled and the lame? Would they be one of the ones whom Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. See, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, uh, Israel as a whole, they acted like they wanted a Messiah, like they wanted a Savior, but in reality, they did not. Jesus was in their midst. He was inviting them to God's banquet feast found in him, and they rejected him. But his invitation would go out nonetheless. His banquet goes on. His work continues. And as we see throughout the gospel accounts, it is generally the lowly, the sinner, the ordinary, the unimpressive, the sick, the needy, the ones who have no problem admitting that they are busted and broken, who receive his invitation with gladness and with willingness. So what's the point? The point is this. Jesus uses three parables in Luke chapter 14 to warn the self-righteous. To open our eyes to the pride which might be in our hearts. And he does so to ready us for grace. To ready us for grace. I want to ask you as we close. What is God saying to you this morning? I believe that when God's word speaks, God speaks. And so what is God saying to you this morning? Would you reflect for just a moment? My prayer is that the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes to pride and self-righteousness that you live with. We all do, by the way. Okay, This is a daily struggle to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And so I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes in some way to pride and self-righteousness that maybe you hadn't been able to see before. Why? Not to shame you, not to condemn you. That is not what Jesus does. He brings truth upon our lives so that he can transform us by his grace. Jesus always offers us grace to repent, to humble ourselves, that we might find our righteousness not in ourself or in our stuff or in our status, but in him and him alone. My hope and my prayer is that you would accurately see Jesus this morning. You would accurately see the one who models for us perfect humility. The one who, in Luke's gospel, marches on toward Jerusalem where suffering and death awaits him. The one who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. The one who, by the way, think about this, who hangs on that very cross and from it cries out, Father, forgive them. Who is he talking about? The self-righteous elite of Israel who had him condemned and tried and crucified. I'm talking about this Jesus, that you would see him accurately, who says, Father, forgive them. I want to invite you to consider the humility of Jesus. I think when we see Jesus clearly, everything changes. We begin to see ourselves rightly. We see ourselves as people who are unworthy, but yet dearly loved. We are unworthy, yet greatly blessed. We are sinners who are drowning in an ocean of grace. We no longer need to prop up ourselves. When we see Jesus clearly, we see others rightly. We see other people around us, no matter what they look like or what they say or what they believe in or how they act, we see them as fellow sinners 
and strugglers, no longer judging them or excluding them. And when we see Jesus rightly, his way of mercy and compassion and love and grace becomes our way. I want to pray that God would help us to see Jesus clearly. Let's pray together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God Almighty, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how Jesus, your words in this parable pierce deep into our heart. And that you love us enough to tell us the truth. You love us enough to speak to our human condition in which we are so prone to pride. We are so prone to righteousness on our own apart from you. Building ourselves up, propping ourselves up, comparing ourselves to others, putting others down, speaking against others, assuming against others. But Jesus, you want us to see our our sin and our brokenness and lay ourselves down at the foot of your cross, where when we come to you and take up our cross, God, you exalt us with Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done through your death and resurrection. Thank you for your love and your heart, not just for rebellious sinners, but for religious sinners, self-righteous sinners, that you love us and that you came for us, that you died for us. Lord, I pray that in this church family that humility and love and mercy would be the way. I pray your blessing even now over Sinner Church, that they would grow strong in your grace, that they would be a family who is marked by your grace and your mercy and your love and your compassion, and that your gospel would go forth in this city through this church. So in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.